Chapter 1 of The Romance of Modern Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kobe Dad. The Romance of Modern Invention by Archibald Williams. Chapter 1 Wireless Telegraphy. One day in 1845, a man named Tarwell, dressed as a Quaker, stepped into a train at Slough Station on the Great Western Railway and travelled to London. When he arrived in London, the innocent-looking Quaker was arrested, much to his amazement and dismay, on the charge of having committed a foul murder in the neighbourhood of Slough. The news of the murder and a description of the murderer had been telegraphed from that place to Paddington, where a detective met the train and shadowed the miscreant until a convenient opportunity for arresting him occurred. Tarwell was tried, condemned, and hung, and the public, for the first time, generally realised the power for good dormant in the as-yet little-developed electric telegraph. Thirteen years later, two vessels met in mid-Atlantic, laden with cables which they joined and paid out in opposite directions, until Ireland and Newfoundland were reached. The first electric message passed on August 7th of that year from the New World to the Old. The telegraph had now become a world power. The third epoch-making event in its history is of recent date. On December 12, 1901, Guglielmo Marconi, a young Italian famous all over the world when but 22 years old, suddenly sprang into yet greater fame. At Hospital Point, Newfoundland, he heard by means of a kite, a long wire, a delicate tube full of tiny particles of metal, and a telephone earpiece, signals transmitted from far off Cornwall by his colleagues. No wires connected Poldew, the Cornish station, and Hospital Point. The three short dot signals, which in Morse code signify the letter S, had been borne from place to place by the limitless, mysterious ether, that strange substance of which we now hear so much, of which wise men declare we know so little. Marconi's great achievement, which was of immense importance, naturally astonished the world. Of course, there were not wanting those who discredited the report. Others, on the contrary, were seized with panic and showed their readiness to believe that the Atlantic had been spanned aerially by selling off their shares in cable companies. To use the language of the money market, there was a temporary slump in cable shares. The world again woke up, this time to the fact that experiments of which it had heard faintly had at last culminated in a great triumph, marvellous in itself, and yet probably nothing in comparison with the revolution in the transmission of news that it heralded. The subject of wireless telegraphy is so wide that to treat it fully in the compass of a single chapter is impossible. At the same time, it would be equally impossible to pass it over in a book written with the object of presenting to the reader the latest developments of scientific research. Indeed, the attention that it had justly attracted entitled it not merely to a place, but to a leading place. And for this reason, these first pages will be devoted to a short account of the history and theory of wireless telegraphy, with some mention of the different systems by which signals have been sent through space. On casting about for a point at which to begin, the writer is tempted to attack the great topic of the ether, to which experimenters in many branches of science are now devoting more and more attention, hoping to find in it an explanation of and connection between many phenomena which at present are of uncertain origin. What is ether? In the first place, its very existence is merely assumed, like that of the atom and the molecule. 
Nobody can say that he has actually seen or had any experience of it. The assumption that there is such a thing is justified only insofar as that assumption explains and reconciles phenomena of which we have experience and enables us to form theories which can be scientifically demonstrated correct. What scientists now say is this, that everything which we see and touch, the air, the infinity of space itself, is permeated by a something, so subtle that no matter how continuous a thing may seem, it is but a concourse of atoms separated by this something, the ether. Reasoning drove them to this conclusion. It is obvious that an effect cannot come out of nothing. Put a clock under a bell glass and you hear the ticking. Pump out the air and the ticking becomes inaudible. What is now not in the glass that was there before? The air. Reason, therefore, obliges us to conclude that the air is the means by which the ticking is audible to us. No air, no sound. Next, put a lighted candle on the further side of the exhausted bell glass. We can see it clearly enough. The absence of air does not affect light. But can we believe that there is an absolute gap between us and the light? No, it is far easier to believe that the bell glass is as full as the outside atmosphere of the something that communicates the sensation of light from candle to the eye. Again, suppose we measure a bar of iron very carefully while cold and then heat it. We shall find that it has expanded a little. The iron atoms, we say, have become more energetic than before, repel each other and stand further apart. What then is in the intervening spaces? Not air, which cannot be forced through iron, whether hot or cold. No, the ether, which passes easily through crevices so small as to bar the way to the atoms of air. Once more, suppose that to one end of our iron bar we apply the negative pole of an electric battery and to the other end the positive pole. We see that a current passes through the bar, whether hot or cold, which implies that it jumps across all the ether gaps, or rather is conveyed by them from one atom to another. The conclusion then is that ether is not merely omnipresent, penetrating all things, but the medium whereby heat, light, electricity, perhaps even thought itself, are transmitted from one point to another. In what manner is the transmission effected? We cannot imagine the ether behaving in a way void of all system. The answer is by a wave motion. The ether must be regarded as a very elastic solid. The agitation of a portion of it by what we call heat, light or electricity sets in motion adjoining particles until they are moving from side to side but not forwards. The resultant movement resembles that of a snake tethered by the tail. These ether waves vary immensely in length. Their qualities and effects upon our bodies or sensitive instruments depend upon their length. By means of ingenious apparatus, the lengths of various waves have been measured. When the waves number 500 billion per second and are but the 40,000th of an inch long, they affect our eyes and are named light, red light. At double the number and half the length, they give us the sensation of violet light. When the number increases and the waves shorten further, our bodies are blind to them. We have no sense to detect their presence. Similarly, a slower vibration than that of red light is imperceptible until we reach the comparatively slow pace of 100 vibrations per second when we become aware of heat. 
Ether waves may be compared to the notes on a piano, of which we are acquainted with some octaves only. The gaps, the unknown octaves, are being discovered slowly but surely. Thus, for example, the famous X-rays have been assigned to the topmost octave, electric waves to the notes between light and heat. Forty years ago, Professor Clerk Maxwell suggested that light and electricity were very closely connected, probably differing only in their wavelength. His theory has been justified by subsequent research. The velocity of light, 185,000 miles per second, and that of electric currents have been proved identical. Hertz, a professor in the University of Bonn, also showed, 1887 to 1889, that the phenomena of light, reflection, refraction, and concentration of rays can be repeated with electric currents. We therefore take the word of scientists that the origin of the phenomena called light and electricity is the same, vibration of ether. It at once occurs to the reader that their behavior is so different that they might as well be considered of altogether different natures. For instance, Interpose the very thinnest sheet of metal between a candle and the eye, and the light is cut off, but the sheet will very readily convey electricity. On the contrary, glass, a substance that repels electricity, is transparent, i.e. gives passage to light. And again, electricity can be conveyed round as many corners as you please, whereas light will travel in straight lines only. To clear away our doubts, we have only to take the lighted candle and again hold up the metal screen. Light does not pass through, but heat does. Substitute for the metal a very thin tank filled with a solution of alum, and then light passes, but heat is cut off. So, that heat and electricity both penetrate what is impenetrable to light, while light forces a passage securely barred against both electricity and heat. And we must remember that open space conveys all alike from the sun to the earth. On meeting what we call solid matter, ether waves are influenced, not because ether is wanting in the solid matter, but because the presence of something else than ether affects the intervening ether itself. Consequently, glass, to take an instance, so affects ether that a very rapid succession of waves, light, are able to continue their way through its interstices, whereas long electric waves are so hampered that they die out altogether. Metal, on the other hand, welcomes slow vibrations, i.e. long waves, but speedily kills the rapid shakes of light. In other words, transparency is not confined to light alone. All bodies are transparent to some variety of rays, and many bodies to several varieties. It may perhaps even be proved that there is no such thing as absolute resistance, and that our inability to detect penetration is due to lack of sufficiently delicate instruments. The cardinal points to be remembered are these, that the ether is a universal medium conveying all kinds and forms of energy, that these forms of energy differ only in their rates of vibration, that the rate of vibration determines what power of penetration the waves shall have through any given substance. Now, it is generally true that whereas matter of any kind offers resistance to light, that is, is not so perfect a conductor as the ether, many substances, especially metals, are more sensitive than ether to heat and electricity. 
how quickly a spoon inserted into a hot cup of tea becomes uncomfortably hot, though the hand can be held very close to the liquid without feeling more than a gentle warmth. And we all have noticed that the very least air gap in an electric circuit effectively breaks a current capable of traversing miles of wire. If the current is so intense that it insists on passing the gap, it leaps across with a report, making a spark that is at once intensely bright and hot. Metal wires are to electricity what speaking tubes are to sound. They are, as it were, electrical tubes through the air and ether. But just as a person listening outside a speaking tube might faintly hear the sounds passing through it, so an instrument gifted with an electric ear would detect the current passing through the wire. Wireless telegraphy is possible because mankind has discovered instruments which act as electric ears or eyes, catching and recording vibrations that had hitherto remained undetected. The earliest known form of wireless telegraphy is transmission of messages by light. A man on a hill lights a lamp or a fire. This represents his instrument for agitating the ether into waves, which proceed straight ahead with incredible velocity until they reach the receiver, the eye of a man watching at a point from which the light is visible. Then came electric telegraphy. At first, a complete circuit, two wires, was used. But in 1838, it was discovered that if instead of two wires, only one was used, and the other being replaced by an earth connection, not only was the effect equally powerful, but even double of what it was with the metallic circuit. Thus, the first step had been taken towards wireless electrical telegraphy. The second was, of course, to abolish the other wire. This was first effected by Professor Morse, who, in 1842, sent signals across the Susquehanna River without metallic connections of any sort. Along each bank of the river was stretched a wire three times as long as the river was broad. In the one wire, a battery and transmitter were inserted. In the other, a receiving instrument or galvanometer. Each wire terminated at each end in a large copper plate sunk in the water. Morse's conclusions were that, provided the wires were long enough and the plates large enough, messages could be transmitted for an indefinite distance, the current passing from plate to plate, though a large portion of it would be lost in the water. It is here proper to observe that the term wireless telegraphy, as applied to electrical systems, is misleading, since it implies the absence of wires, whereas in all systems wires are used. But since it is generally understood that by wireless telegraphy is meant telegraphy without metallic connections, and because the more improved methods lessen more and more the amount of wire used, the phrase has been allowed to stand. About the same date, a Scotchman, James Bowman Lindsay of Dundee, a man as rich in intellectual attainments as he was pecuniarily poor, sent signals in a similar manner across the River Tay. In September 1859, Lindsay read a paper before the British Association at Dundee, in which he maintained that his experiments and calculations assured him that, by running wires along the coasts of America and Great Britain, by using a battery having an acting surface of 130 square feet, and immersed sheets of 3,000 square feet, and a coil weighing 300 pounds, he could send messages from Britain to America. Want of money prevented the poor scholar of Dundee from carrying out his experiments on a large enough scale to obtain public support. 
He died in 1862, leaving behind him the reputation of a man who in the face of greatest difficulties made extraordinary electrical discoveries at the cost of unceasing labor. And this in spite of the fact that he had undertaken and partly executed a gigantic dictionary in 50 different languages. The transmission of electrical signals through matter, metal, earth or water is affected by conduction or the leading of the currents in a circuit. When we come to deal with aerial transmission, i.e. where one or both wires are replaced by the ether, then two methods are possible, those of induction and Hertzian waves. To take the induction method first, whenever a current is sent through a wire, magnetism is set up in the ether surrounding the wire, which becomes the core of a magnetic field. The magnetic waves extend for an indefinite distance on all sides, and on meeting a wire parallel to the electrified wire, induce in it a dynamical current similar to that which caused them. Wherever electricity is present, there is magnetism also, and vice versa. Electricity produces magnetism produces electricity. The invention of the Bell telephone enabled telegraphers to take advantage of this law. In 1885, Sir William Preece, now consulting electrical engineer to the General Post Office, erected near Newcastle two insulated squares of wire, each side 440 yards long. The squares were horizontal, parallel, and a quarter of a mile apart. On current being sent through the one, currents were detected in the other by means of a telephone, which remained active even when the squares were separated by 1,000 yards. Sir William Preece thus demonstrated that signals could be sent without even an earth connection, i.e. entirely through the ether. In 1886, he sent signals between two parallel telegraph wires four and one-half miles apart, and in 1892 established a regular communication between Flatholm, an island fort in the Bristol Channel, and Lavenock, a point on the Welsh coast three and one-third miles distant. The inductive method might have attained to greater success had not a formidable rival appeared in the Hertzian waves. In 1887, Professor Hertz discovered that if the discharge from a Leyden jar were passed through wires containing an air gap across which the discharge had to pass, sparks would also pass across a gap in an almost complete circle or square of wire held at some distance from the jar. This electric eye or detector could have its gap so regulated by means of a screw that at a certain width its effect would be most pronounced, under which condition the detector, or receiver, was in tune with the exciter, or transmitter. Hertz thus established three great facts, that a. A discharge of static, i.e. collected electricity, across an air gap produced strong electric waves in the ether on all sides, b that these waves could be caught. c. That under certain conditions the catcher worked most effectively. Out of these three discoveries has sprung the latest phase of wireless telegraphy, as exploited by Signor Marconi. He, in common with Professor Branley of Paris, Popoff of Kronstadt, and Schleby of Charlottenburg, besides many others, have devoted their attention to the production of improved means of sending and receiving the Hertzian waves. Their experiments have shown that two things are required in wireless telegraphy. 
1. That the waves shall have great penetrating power so as to pierce any obstacle. 2. That they shall retain their energy so that a maximum of their original force shall reach the receiver. The first condition is fulfilled best by waves of great length. The second by those which, like light, are of greatest frequency. For best telegraphic results, a compromise must be effected between these extremes. Neither the thousand-mile-long waves of an alternating dynamo, nor the light waves of many thousands to an inch being of use. The Hertzian waves are estimated to be 230 million per second, at which rate they would be one and one-half yards long. They vary considerably, however, on both sides of this rate and dimension. Marconi's transmitter consists of three parts, a battery, an induction coil terminating in a pair of brass balls, one on each side of the air gap, and a Morse transmitting key. Upon the key being depressed, a current from the battery passes through the coil and accumulates electricity on the brass balls until its tension causes it to leap from one to the other many millions of times in what is called a spark. The longer the air gap, the greater must be the accumulation before the leap takes place, and the greater the power of the vibrations set up. Marconi found that, by connecting a kite or balloon covered with tin foil by an aluminium wire with one of the balls, the effect of the waves was greatly increased. Sometimes he replaced the kite or balloon by a conductor placed on poles two or three hundred feet high, or by the mast of a ship. We now turn to the receiver. In 1879, Professor D. E. Hughes observed that a microphone, in connection with a telephone, produced sounds in the latter even when the microphone was at a distance of several feet from coils through which a current was passing. A microphone, it may be explained, is in its simplest form a loose connection in an electric circuit, which causes the current to flow in fits and starts at very frequent intervals. He discovered that a metal microphone stuck or cohered after a wave had influenced it, but that a carbon microphone was self-restoring, i.e. regained its former position of loose contact as soon as a wave effect had ceased. In 1891, Professor Branley of Paris produced a coherer, which was nothing more than a microphone under another name. Five years later, Marconi somewhat altered Branley's contrivance and took out a patent for a coherer of his own. It is a tiny glass tube, about two inches long and a tenth of an inch in diameter inside. A wire enters it at each end, the wires terminating in two silver plugs fitting the bore of the tube. A space of one thirty-second of an inch is left between the plugs, and this space is filled with special filings, a mixture of ninety-six parts of nickel to four of silver, and the merest trace of mercury. The tube is exhausted of almost all its air before being sealed. This little gap filled with filings is, except when struck by an electric wave, to all practical purposes a non-conductor of electricity. The metal particles touch each other so lightly that they offer great resistance to a current. But when a Hertzian wave flying through the ether strikes the coherer, the particles suddenly press hard on one another and make a bridge through which a current can pass. The current works a relay, or circuit through which a stronger current passes, opening and closing it as often as the coherer is influenced by a wave. The relay actuates a tapper that gently taps the tube after each wave influence, causing the particles to decohere in readiness for the succeeding wave, 
and also a Morse instrument for recording words in dots and dashes on a long paper tape. The coherer may be said to resemble an engine driver and the relay an engine. The driver is not sufficiently strong to himself move a train, but he has strength enough to turn on steam and make the engine do the work. The coherer is not suitable for use with currents of the intensity required to move a Morse recorder, but it easily switches a powerful current into another circuit. Want of space forbids a detailed account of Marconi's successes with his improved instruments, but the appended list will serve to show how he gradually increased the distance over which he sent signals through space. In 1896 he came to England. That year he signalled from a room in the general post office to a station on the roof 100 yards distant. Shortly afterwards he covered two miles on Salisbury Plain. In May 1897 he sent signals from Lavenock Point to Flatholm, three and one-third miles. This success occurred at a critical time, for Sir W. Priest had already, as we have seen, bridged the same gap by his induction method, and for three days Marconi failed to accomplish the feat with his apparatus, so that it appeared as though the newer system were the less effective of the two. But, by carrying the transmitting instrument onto the beach below the cliff on which it had been standing, and joining it by a wire to the pole already erected on top of the cliff, Mr. Marconi, thanks to a happy inspiration, did just what was needed. He got a greater length of wire to send off his waves from. Communication was at once established with Flatholm, and on the next day with Brian Down, on the other side of the Bristol Channel and eight and two-thirds miles distant. Then we have Needles Hotel to Swinage, 17 and one-half miles. Salisbury to Bath, 34 miles. French Coast to Harwick, 90 miles. Isle of Wight to the Lizard, 196 miles. At sea in 1901, 350 miles. December 17th, 1901, England to America, 2,099 miles. A more pronounced, though perhaps less sensational success than even this, last occurred at the end of February 1902. Mr. Marconi, during a voyage to America on the SS Philadelphia, remained in communication with Poldew Cornwall until the vessel was 1,550 miles distant, receiving messages on a Morse recorder for anyone acquainted with the code to read. Signals arrived for a further 500 miles, but, owing to his instruments not being of sufficient strength, Mr. Marconi could not reply. When the transatlantic achievement was announced at the end of 1901, there was a tendency in some quarters to decry the whole system. The critics laid their fingers on two weak points. In the first place, they said the speed at which the messages could be transmitted was too slow to ensure the system would pay. Mr. Marconi replied that there had been a time when one word per minute was considered good working rate across the Atlantic cable, whereas he had already sent 22 words per minute over very long distances. A further increase of speed was only a matter of time. The second objection raised centered on the lack of secrecy resulting from signals being let loose into space to strike any instrument within their range, and also on the confusion that must arise when the ether was traversed by many sets of electric waves. The young Italian inventor had been throughout his experiments aware of these defects and sought means to remedy them. 
In his earliest attempts, we find him using parabolic metal screens to project his waves in any required direction and prevent their going in any other. He also employed strips of metal in conjunction with the Kahira, the strips, or wings, being of such a size as to respond most readily to waves of a certain length. The electric oscillations coming from the aerial wires carried on poles, kites, etc. were of great power, but their energy dispersed very quickly into space in a series of rapidly diminishing vibrations. This fact made them affect, to a greater or lesser degree, any receiver they might encounter on their wanderings. If you go into a room where there is a piano and make a loud noise near the instrument, a jangle of notes results. But if you take a tuning fork and, after striking it, place it near the strings, only one string will respond, i.e. that of the same pitch as the fork. What is required in wireless telegraphy is a system corresponding to the use of the tuning fork. Unfortunately, it has been discovered that the syntony or tuning of transmitter and receiver reduces the distance over which they are effective. An electric noise is more far-reaching than an electric note. Mr. Marconi has, however, made considerable advances towards combining the sympathy and secrecy of the tuning system with the power of the noise system. By means of delicately adjusted wings and coils, he has brought it about that a series of waves, having small individual strength, but great regularity, shall produce on the receiver a cumulative effect, storing, as it were, electricity on the surface of the receiver wings until it is of sufficient power to overcome the resistance of the Kahira. That tuned wireless telegraphy is, over moderate distances, at least as secret as that through wires, which can be tapped by induction, is evident from the fact that during the America Cup yacht race, Mr. Marconi sent daily to the New York Herald messages of 4,000 total words, and kept them private in spite of all efforts to intercept them. He claims to have as many as 250 tunes, and indeed there seems to be no limit to their number, so that the would-be tapper is in the position of a man trying to open a letter lock of which he does not know the cipher word. He may discover the right tune, but the chances are greatly against him. We may be certain that the rapid advance in wireless telegraphy will not proceed much further before syntotic messages can be transmitted over hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. It is hardly necessary to dwell upon the great prospect that the new telegraphy opens to mankind. The advantages arising out of a ready means of communication, freed from the shackles of expensive connecting wires and cables, are, in the main, obvious enough. We have only to imagine all the present network of wires replaced or supplemented by ether waves, which will be able to act between points, e.g. ships and ships, ships and land, moving and fixed objects generally, which cannot be connected by metallic circuits. Already, ocean voyages are being shortened as regards the time during which passengers are out of contact with the doings of the world. The transatlantic journey has now a newsless period of but three days. Navies are being fitted out with instruments that may play as important a part as the big guns themselves in the next naval war. A great maritime nation like our own should be especially thankful that the day is not far distant when our great empire will be connected by invisible electric links that no enemy may discover and cut. The romantic side of wireless telegraphy has been admirably touched in some words uttered by Professor Ayrton in 1899, after the reading of a paper by Mr. Marconi before the Institution of Electrical Engineers.
If a person wished to call a friend, said the professor, he would use a loud electromagnetic voice, audible only to him and who had the electromagnetic ear. Where are you? he would say. The reply would come, I am at the bottom of a coal mine, or crossing the Andes, or in the middle of the Pacific. Or, perhaps in spite of the calling, no reply would come, and the person would then know his friend was dead. Let them think of what that meant, of the calling which went on every day from room to room of a house, and then imagine that calling extended from pole to pole, not a noisy babble, but a call audible to him who wanted to hear, and absolutely silent to him who did not. When will Professor Ayrton's forecast come true? Who can say? Science is so full of surprises that the ordinary man wonders with a semi-fear what may be the next development. And wise men, like Lord Kelvin, humbly confess that in comparison with what has yet to be learnt about the mysterious inner workings of nature, their knowledge is but as ignorance. End of chapter 1. Recording by Kobe Dad.